0: Welcome to the Where 2 or 3 podcast, Christian thinkers finding their place at the table of communication scholarship. Before we begin, the views and discussions of this podcast do not necessarily reflect agreement with the views of Martin Luther College.
1: Yeah, uh, good to be with you, John. Let's uh, start with prayer as we like to do. We pray. The eyes of all wait upon thee, O Lord, and thou givest them their food at the proper time. Thou openest thine hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing. Amen. Amen. So, uh, John, you and I had a little fun surprise after we recorded last time. We Yeah. <laughs> you remember? You don't remember. We were talking about we should have a way for our oh own, yeah yeah I got into the email I got into the us. email so, well we do have an email attached to our podcast and so you went and tracked down the password and what did you discover?
0: We have no mail, <laughs> <laughs>
1: zero mail. <laughs> I thought for sure there'd be one or two, like we trigger something and someone wants to know what book no, we I, mentioned. No,
0: it makes so. sense because we've never. <laughs> Yeah, we've never given it out, so I understand <laughs> how, if someone emailed it might have been actually more concerning. But uh but yeah, we didn't we don't have any mail. It's basically just used to have all the accounts for the back end of getting this podcast published. But um yeah, we open it up. So all your thoughts. Yep. Send them.
1: Yeah, now now we know. So should or we don't. give out the address or no? <laughs> Did we say it last time?
0: Yeah, it's where two or three podcast. At gmail.com, where two or three podcast at gmail.com, all spelled out, no numbers, just all all letters, no caps, but that wouldn't matter. So, yeah, have at it. Send us <laughs> your best.
1: Uh, so, I have, we have with us, you're in Colorado still, so, uh, in my office around my table are two of my favorite people, and we'll get them talking in a moment. I, I want to talk about vocation some, just unpack the doctrine of vocation. Uh, from the Lutheran perspective, but then after that, I, or part of that, I really want to just interview these guys, and maybe you too as well. Like, what is the role communication plays in your chosen vocation? So, <clears throat> we have our first yeah. time ever guests, which is cool. So I'll get yeah, to you guys surprise anyway. number two for the yeah, day. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so we'll introduce them <laughs> better in a moment. Uh, just a brief devotional thought. Um, John fourteen thirty three. Jesus said, "Anyone who does not give me." or anyone who does not give up everything cannot cannot be my disciple. I remember hearing a devotion about that years ago that I kind of stole for my essay on vocation. Uh, as a pastor who was saying, Jesus says, give me everything. Just give me everything. And it starts with, give me your shame, and give me your fears, and give me your future, and give me your past, and, and just give me everything. Hand it over. Hand it over. And it was just really nicely presented. Just, you know? and But then it extends to... Um, your whole life and extends to your callings uh, whatever they may be and so I envision in my essay um, it's called, by the way, Unleashing Our Calling it's in the seminary essay file uh, under my name um, the essay envisions a Bible study where people come and they all bring some artifact of their vocation Like the farmer brings the keys to the tractor whatever, the, the nurse assistant <clears throat> brings her stethoscope and they all sit and talk about <clears throat> how this is the thing that they chosen to offer to God with those little artifacts as remnants. But then my essay says that's all made up because the reality is when I was a pastor, I had maybe 45 seconds of things to say about how a person serves the Lord with their whole entire life. And I just look back and really have regret about what a a shallow understanding that was when I, I found that people actually were hungry to know that what they do with their whole life isn't just on the margins of their life, but is, is their offering to Jesus. So that's our topic. We're going to unpack vocation again, but then just explore kind of the random collection of vocations that are that are here in this room. So we'll see, we'll see where it goes. So uh, this doesn't have to be monologue ever, so anybody can always react. Just, so by the way, we're sharing a microphone here in Noam. Um, so there'll be... Might be a good listening exercise where you can't talk unless you have the microphone, mm-hmm. like a listening stick kind of thing. We'll <laughs> Here's the
0: rock. You can talk now. Yeah,
1: you can talk now. So, anybody always just grab the microphone. Other it will come to you in, in a moment more formally. But, anybody got thoughts so far? Um, <clears throat> I kind of wonder if this is a well understood teaching or not that whatever vocation you've chosen to do is holy because you're holy for Jesus' sake and that there isn't that the ministry is a higher road and then other vocations are the lower road. I just kind of wondered, John, is that familiar to you or?
0: Well, I, I mean, I'll say it right off the bat is like my, what I do has changed so much over the last five years that it's, I don't always know exactly. And it's something that I wrestle with quite a bit. You know, why am I doing this? What is the, what does this mean in terms of, you know, wrestling the other dichotomies that you have to, when you're, when you're living the life of a Christian. And, uh, yeah, my only reaction, I guess, to the the devotional thought was, I remember that specifically, you know, giving it all, all to him. I remember that as a cross country, <laughs> uh, yeah. devotion that you had before, before a particularly difficult practice, I believe. And, um, but yeah, it's, uh, that was, it's, uh, uh it's not something that I'd, I have figured out, I don't want to be like, here's how you, you know, have a vocation that isn't called ministry. I don't, I don't know. I don't know exactly. I, I fail. I fall down. I have to pick myself back up. I have to sort it out as I'm going. Um, but that's, that's part of it. So, so mm-hmm. I'm excited. I'm excited for this one. Cause it's a little bit more uncharted territory for me. Yeah. That's and I'm also just excited to hear about, about our, our guest vocations because I, yeah. I don't know too much about them. So we'll get,
1: there, we'll get there in a minute because. Get a taste of curiosity, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like one insight was that we serve both in and through vocation. So we serve in vocation, meaning the person beside me should be is God's epidemiologist in this world and, and God's therapist in this world to be the best they can be at those things God has given them to do. That's working in vocation. Um, famously Luther, maybe, did, maybe Luther didn't say this, but people think he maybe said it. What does God want of Christian shoemakers? Well-made shoes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he said, mm-hmm. not, not shoes with little crosses on them. Well-made shoes. Yeah. So <laughs> that's serving God in God adores
0: good craftsmanship, I yeah, believe. Yeah.
1: Um, but then working um, through vocation means that your vocation does take you to places that um, takes the church into the world. And that you can mm-hmm. inter- interact with people, you, John, for example, that I will never interact with as a pastor. And so both in and through are both valid. And so with, so that's, let's hold that thought. I want to introduce our guests. And mm-hmm. so we'll start with Abby. Um, just tell us what you do, Abby, and we'll just kind of see where it goes. We might have some questions for you, but go ahead.
2: Hi, I'm Abby. I am a research epidemiologist Um, and I've found my sort of passion within that field in, um, infection prevention and control in healthcare settings. Um, so making sure that people don't leave the hospital with something they didn't come in with, it's a pretty solid baseline in terms of a framework for healthcare that we shouldn't make people sicker than they already were. Um, but it turns out that can be a really challenging thing to do because when you take all the sick people and put them in one place, Mm -hmm. there are a lot of germs to go around Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I do.
1: Follow up, John, or for me, we're going to exchange the microphone here again. It'll be a little bit stilted. I, I wanted to say, um, one thing that, while you bring vocation to mind, Abby, is that, uh, and we've talked about this for a while, but when you decided not to go to the college where I teach, MLC, I'm going to go to a School for Smart Kids, we both guys went, <laughs> University of Minnesota Morris. <laughs> I mean, let's face it, it's a nerd school. It's just a school of just top-shelf academics. Um, and I don't remember what you said. Was it hard to tell us you didn't want to be a teacher and go where I teach? And I, th- I think and hope we were like, dude, I mean, you know, we believe in setting our kids free. And there was never, a, there was never a, again, the thought that ministry is the higher path and other vocations are the lower path. That was never our thought. Do you have any thoughts about that?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I'll say, like, this never came from you guys or, like, from you and mom. I think you were both very supportive of kind of whatever I wanted to do. Um, That said, I, you know, from, like, teachers, other people like that, there was kind of a sense of, like, you're doing something wrong or you know, you'll be back in two years when you realize you made a mistake. And like this kind of attitude, I will say that wasn't the prevailing attitude, but I definitely experienced that from some people. Um, I think, you know, that was, that was challenging in that, you know, really, I had to think through that, especially my first couple years of college of what am I doing? Why am I doing this? Is it just because I don't want to be like everybody else? I know I want to kind of go off and do my own thing. And I think There was a piece of that in there, but I also think that ministry just wasn't the right path for me. Like, it would have been fine, but I think I am better equipped to help the world in the way I'm doing it now than I would be in more of a ministry role.
1: I know that will strike a chord with our five listeners, (laughs) or however many we're up to now. What do you, John, you must react to to that. Oh, sorry.
0: I think you cut out for a second. Oh, yeah. Can you react?
1: Would you like to react to that? I'm just thinking that really strikes a chord with a ton of people.
0: Yeah. I think, well, myself personally, I did my first year of college um, outside of the Wells for the first time. And so I understand that. Um, I had similar experience where, you know, some people were very open to that, encouraging of that. Other people were almost disappointed and it was hard to not feel that. Um, I did end up transferring to MLC and then still not doing ministry, going to, you know, pursued communication degree and now working in film amongst other things. So it's been a bit more of a wandering path for me. It hasn't been, uh, one way and I'm kind of set off in that direction, but, but I do understand the, maybe it, maybe it is a Wells thing. There's like a pressure for, you know, children of, of called workers to, continue in those footsteps as well. Um maybe it's I'm sure everyone's story is slightly different, but I've I felt both of those things. My parents f- for sure I think were also were, were encouraging of, you know, whatever you do just give it your all. We think you're capable of of anything you put your mind to, so they're very encouraging of that and for that I'm very grateful cuz I don't yeah. think it would have taken the path I did or be where I am now if that wasn't at the very foundation of what I was told when I was growing up. So
1: this just goes to the core of the Lutheran Reformation. L- Luther famously shouts to the man behind the plow, "Jump for joy, you king, you priest! That what you do is holy because you are, for Jesus' sake." And it's not the higher path and the lower path. And so, yeah. Now, John, as I've heard you talk about, you're kind of you're kind of off the script as far as all the many callings you've taken on. You may not think of this, but I've often heard you. Talk about being in a role to try to rescue a company, for example. So things are a hot mess, and how the thing is run, and John Wilder comes in to try to, you know, create some order. So whether you think about that is your the role you've been given to do some good in the world. That's kind of how I think of it. So as far as the in versus through yeah, I, vocation, I, I try
0: to. I suppose I had a a business coach once. It was. It wasn't like counseling or therapy. It was like a. I guess it, called it a, a business coach, executive coach, however you wanted to say it. Um, but he challenged me to think of this very question: Why do? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And do you have a? Is there a theme that surrounds that? And so the one that I kind of centered on was the theme of service. So wherever I'm going, whatever I'm doing, whatever form that takes, think about that in terms of what people am I serving? How many people am I serving? And and then. That allows you to, to take on a enormous number of tasks with a, a new light, and so whether it's you know helping, you know salvage a company from the brink of bankruptcy, or whether it's you know making a commercial about a video game, you know, and it how in all of those places you look everywhere you go, maybe it, on the surface it doesn't seem like like service, but in all of those things, it's uh, maybe I have a chance to employ someone who wasn't employed for some time and now they're able to put food on their table for their family, things like that. So that's, that's where I try to draw some, uh, that's where I just try to focus my attention, I suppose. It's just everything through that lens and that helps guide the, the decisions that I make.
1: Yeah. My example is a checkout girl who checks out groceries, just kind of slows down to chat up the old bastard farmer that, that is, so it's, it's how you treat people too. Within vocation, it's just how you treat people. Mm-hmm. Which, yeah, yeah I, f- I feel like we have something called a uh, gospel reductionism, which says unless you're sharing the gospel, <clears throat> there's really not a reason you're here on the planet. You're here. You're here for one reason. After you're saved, right, <laughs> and that is to to do that. But that's just not what our Lutheran confessions say. That any act of kindness is the Lord Christ celebrating His victory over sin, death, and devil. And I just think. I really think we can push people to the again push what they do with their whole life to the margin, as if it was not relevant. Uh, I got another question. I have more questions for you Abby, because I want to hear you talk. <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> I just got to put out there this analogy from uh, Herr Deutschlander, uh, just a giant from our past in our circles here. And so here's the picture. He said, choosing vocation. So what's the most good I can do in this world based on who I am and what I love and what lights my eyes up and so on what my gifts are. So he said, it's like, it's like going to a department store and picking out a gift for your, for your dad. And so you walk down the aisles of the store and the sharps, the sharps, the shelf. shelves. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> I lost the word shelf. So the okay. shelves are lined with things that stand for locations. And you just walk the, you walk the aisles and you're just looking at things. Um, and your eye falls on something that you say, this is what I want to, do for my dad right this is what I want to buy my dad and so you buy that thing that that vocation and living vocation is like crawling up into the lap of a father and it's all wrapped up he opens it whatever it is you're a farmer you're a lawyer epidemiologist therapist he says he says for me (laughs) you do this for me and just taking pure delight in the offering of a full-time vocation um in service and I think I think that's what really is going to resonate with people who've just never heard that message, you know. So um, I'm going to give the microphone to Abby, and you can react, Abby, or the other question is, so really in the sweet spot of our podcast, you've studied somewhere in your past, you studied health communication. So talk about that if you like. What were some projects you did? What do you remember from years ago about that field? Because that'll take us right back to what John and I always talk about. So here you go. And we'll get to Keenan soon, too. Keenan's right here.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think I just want to say I've never heard that Deutschlander analogy, and I really like it. I think that really resonates with me and is maybe a way that I haven't yet come to think about it, right? Like, I still kind of went into a very servicey field. field, um, and that was always very important to me, was to still be doing something that felt like it was really actively, like, helping other people in a really tangible way. Um, I think it's interesting to think about it in in the other way of, like, it's a gift for God no matter what it is. Um, Health communication. What was the question? I'm sorry.
1: Just, uh, what do you remember?
2: Yeah. Um, I have to think back. It's been a while, and I was thinking about this last night. I took health communication and health psychology in the same semester, and there was about 50 to 70% overlap between those two classes. So I'm not going to remember which thing came from which class. <laughs> um, and maybe that's controversial among the communication people. <laughs> I don't know.
1: <laughs> we have a disclaimer, so <laughs>
2: <laughs> we should be okay. Yeah. <laughs> the classes were there. I, I,
0: I wouldn't be worried if there is overlap. I wouldn't be worried if there's overlap. I think there communication covers such a broad umbrella of different thought and exercise that it, there there is quite a bit of overlap for good reason so if there's if there's f- something from one or, or the other i'm i'm interested in hearing both
2: yeah i think um you know in public health we're learning more and more especially you know through the covid-19 pandemic that the way we have been trying to approach change in general isn't working and this is sort of not answering the question that you asked yeah. but um there's Everyone wants to educate our way out of this, right? Um, So the the issue of under-vaccination is education, and if only people knew that it was important, they would get vaccinated. But that turns out that's not the case. Like, the information is out there. We live in 2023. Like, everyone has the internet at their fingertips, more or less. So the information is out there. Where communication, I think, really comes in is making it meaningful to people, making it... Packaging it in a way that makes people want to do something, do whatever, you know, the action is that we're asking them to take. And I think that's been something that I've personally been learning more about, too, is, like, we can do all the research in the world. I can publish twenty papers. But if, you know, we can't make it accessible, it's not going to change anything. And so my boss is really good at this, Um, always thinking about who your audience is. Um, and really tailoring the message to them, really packaging it in a way, you know, if I'm talking to a group of other researchers, I'm talking about the issue very differently than I am if I'm talking to healthcare workers or if I'm talking to patients, things like that. Um, So that's, you know, there's a lot of psychology in there too, but that's, that's, I think, kind of the, my big takeaway from the last couple years of, you know, being a brand new epidemiologist in the middle of a global pandemic and (laughs) dealing with the both the science and the communication of the science
1: <coughs> That's so cool. I have a question
0: this yeah, is go ahead. we uh, I think we might have maybe we've touched on this uh, in a in a previous or in a different context but the is there the idea of code switching in this realm where you're you know sometimes talking to uh, <laughs> sometimes talking to a patient sometimes you're talking to a caregiver, sometimes you're talking to you know, a researcher you, and you have different language, different jargon, different approaches. Is, is that what you mean by studying or knowing your audience?
2: Yeah, I think that's definitely a huge part of it. I think about even um, the way we approach going to different conferences. We go to conferences with a bunch of epidemiologists and there's a big conference that we go to every year that's for people who work in sterile processing, which is kind of the bowels of the hospital. They don't get paid well. It's not a great job. Um you know, typically maybe a high school diploma, maybe not. Um, And even like we dress differently when we go to those conferences, like we'll wear, you know, like blazers and stuff to the epidemiology conferences and we'll dress it way down for the sterile processing conferences because we want to be approachable. And that's what we're there to do is to take the science that we do and make it meaningful and accessible to that particular audience. And if, you know, to the code switching thing. If we show up really aloof and really using big jargony words and things like that, it's both off-putting and like, nobody's going to understand what we're talking about.
0: We interrupt this broadcast with a bit of sad news. We had a technical glitch that caused half of the episode to not record. And so this is John, uh, Dr. Pauschen and Abby Smart back to record the rest of this episode with Keenan as well. Maybe uh, <laughs> we've been, uh, we, we've been able to salvage about half of the episode. And so we we've been able to keep that part of the conversation and we're going to pick it up where we left off. I believe we had just finished talking about code switching, um, differing our language when entering different situations. And so we'll continue the conversation from here and then uh, look forward to the next episode as well, which we, at the time of this recording, have already recorded with Keenan and uh, we it's allude to confusing. this moment. <laughs> yeah, we we allude to this moment very much. So enjoy the the little bit of a time circus that's going on in, the, in these episodes, but very excited to continue this conversation, because these have been some very refreshing ones to kind of pivot away after doing a quite exhaustive uh, discussion about apologetics, which I also loved, but a breath of fresh air with these
1: on vocation. So... Yeah, yeah, it's a little heartbreaking. That was one of the best conversations I've ever had. <laughs> we we'll just I'm have flattered. to take our word, take our word for it. <laughs> it was so good, you guys, and now we're gonna try to recreate it. And just you know, who knows? We'll do it better this time. Oh think? that's right, <laughs> okay. yeah, I think so. And yeah. we'll get to you, Keenan.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah he'll be here he'll be, he'll be on in the next episode for yeah, sure. Yeah, he's Maybe not we'll actually get here. To anymore. get to him at the end uh, at the end of this one.
1: <laughs> <clears throat> okay, so um it, it was actually kind of a clean break. what I was just about to do. what we lost was me taking a little bit more space to just talk about location, um just the way I've always talked about it. so it goes like this. This is a repeat for you too. Um, and this is actually is stolen from a book by a Missouri Senate writer Gene Veets, I believe, called God at Work. And so he starts by saying something like, um, There's a donut on your table for breakfast, and just stop and consider how it got there. And you really open your mind to that question. You think of you think farmers first, but think grocers and truckers, then you think bankers and accountants, and and it just becomes an incredibly long list of how many people have had their hands in, in that simple thing, and that's just a donut after all, you know, and so the doctrine of vocation gets you thinking about the, the providence and care of God that has people right where he needs them and right where he wants them to serve the world, and um, and like I say, you can kind of unhinge your mind and you just think of how staggeringly complex and beautiful that is. And so that's a place to go further. I, my comment that, that we lost was, um, as a young person, I think if I thought of divine providence, um, first article, you know, divine care, I would think right away about God turning the brown field green every spring, I would say. So God sends crops and rains and sun. and And he cares for us in that way, which of course is, incredible, of course, is profoundly true. But where I'm at now, as I think of divine providence, I think much more immediately about people. I think that the people that just show up, and in Luther's terminology, God puts on masks, that is, these people were where God wants them to be, puts on masks, and he wears them, and he uses them to see to it that our needs are met, and that, that we are loved, and So I think I often say it this way, that if I still have a a bride who loves me and keeps me warm and dry and fed and kids will still throw their arms around me, um, it just brings God's care so close. You can just kind of take your breath away and you think, how did I miss it that God's care for me is that immediate and that present and that tangible? You know, so partly what this is, it, it lets us think beyond only, let's say, personal witnessing You'll hear people say that that's the reason I'm on the planet once I'm saved, and that's the only thing that really kind of counts. And no, no, the world has a lot of needs, all kinds of needs, as diverse as you can imagine, and they all count. So it's a kind of a lost feature of the Reformation that uh, in Luther's day there were two paths. You could be the path of the priest and nun and, and monk and so on. That was the higher path really had God's smile on it, or there was a lower path of being a farmer or or a lawyer, a banker, whatever else it else might be, or a mother, you know? And Luther just completely demolished that distinction. He's famous for, uh, as I say, shouting to the man behind the plow, jump for joy, you king, you priest. Um, what you do is holy to God because you are holy. And just completely, like I say, erasing that really false distinction that I can only imagine if you believe that it would, just, it would just be a discouraging thing. And I think I maybe said this already, it's hard to know what we captured or lost, but to to push to the margin what I do with the great great mass of my time and energy is if it somehow is sort of irrelevant and doesn't count and so on. So I have a little more, well, um, maybe one more point, then I'll pause and see if you guys want to jump in. You don't have to. Um, so the line that has been attributed to Luther that, People can't find it to know. There's a lot of Luther quotes that are like that, if if he actually said it. But it's a nice line anyway, whether he said it or not. And that is, what does God want from Christian shoemakers? Um, Shoes with little crosses on them? No, he wants well-made shoes. That's what he wants, to, to do your job well and faithfully as you work in your vocation. There is also working through vocation, which is, that these various vocations also take you to places where your pastor will never be. So there's also that you're in this place and we can we can witness and let our light shine. And that would be, we said, maybe how you treat people when you're doing that work. There could be working through vocation, but not to discount what you do in vocation, that the task itself has been given to you as your way of serving the Lord. Um, For sure. So, would that yeah. be Would that be part of the... And I think this
0: is something that we've already mentioned in this episode, but the the gathering and the scattering and then the regathering of the church. And so part of the scattering is specifically useful for that one reason, which is that latter point that you just made, being in places where your pastor cannot be, and then to be able to witness and let your light shine in, in that
1: place as well. Yeah. And I think I vaguely remember you brought this up, John, in the last episode, <laughs> that um <clears throat> This issue of saying two things. So the idea is that sometimes to say something, well, you have to say two things. And to to say only one of them is true, but a distortion. Um, So the example is it costs nothing to become a Christian, which is a true thing to shout from the rooftops. But if we only said that and never said the other thing, which is that it costs everything to be a Christian. As we started out saying, Jesus says, give me everything if you want to. Follow me. So there's two things to say. And in this regard, the two things are we can say that the public ministry is very special, um, and, and we can have no reason to be hesitant to still champion that. But that's been said. So that's the thing that kind of everybody knows, because we say it all the time. And that the thing not said is what these two episodes are about the other vocations. There's no degrees of holiness. There's holy or not holy, and we're holy because of Jesus and so is what we've been given to do. So that's the thing that kinda of goes unsaid. So but yeah, you're referring to the rhythm of the church gathering around the pastor, let's say, but more importantly around the means of grace. And then and then the church scatters into the world, where the world does need them to be. And that's real estate offices, it's you know, that's McDonald's, that's the hospital, it's whatever. And then the church gathers again and scatters, so there's that kind of yeah. Rhythm, like like breathing almost. And if the church ever didn't didn't scatter, then then vocations become jobs. Then we yeah. just lose that sense of you know, Abby, you're God's epidemiologist. And you know, we would lose that if we didn't have that very special thing called the ministry. Yeah. So, again, I'll pause and take a breath. I have one more thing to say. Maybe then I have a question for Abby.
0: I think I also have a a question for Abby, and and this is one oh. that maybe I don't think we this is this was in part of the episode that was lost. Yeah. But the question was, you know, speaking of epidemiology, what is a normal day in the life of an epidemiologist like? Like, are you going in? Are you working on? disparate projects? Is it always something new? Is there a, is there a rhythm or are there some things that happen, you know, every week we have to do this, but then we're working on other things. I'm, I'm just curious what, what the, what a normal day is like.
2: Yeah. Um, I think I'm not sure how typical my daily experience is to the average epidemiologist because I don't work for like a health department or anything like that, which is a pretty common setting for epidemiologists to work. Um, I work for a research firm. Um, So we do mostly research around um, healthcare, preventing healthcare-associated infections. Um, Infection prevention in healthcare settings is how we usually describe that. And um, my day is split, or my time, I should say, is split pretty evenly between helping my team stay on top of what's going on in the research sphere. Um, So I survey the FDA databases, CDC databases, you know mm. science journals, I spend about half my day just reading everything that's come out um, yeah on the All topic the page turners yep <laughs> <laughs> yep and then I and then I sort of because a lot of people don't want to be reading these things for some crazy reason, so I kind of yeah. take it and distill yeah, who it wouldn't I know that's what I'm saying
0: <laughs> <laughs> have there been papers that come out that you know radically change your perception on something or like has you know been a you know, it ripples through the epidemiology industry or workplace. It like changes the way you do things. Are there things like that that have come out that you've read where it's like, wow, this actually pivots away Mm -hmm. from what we've been doing and makes us go in a different direction?
2: Yeah. I mean, there are certainly game changers that come out, you know, one paper that really definitively you know shifts the paradigm of how we think about things generally Mm -hmm. it's not as exciting as that generally it's really small incremental things like Mm -hmm. hey this estimate for the infection risk after whatever abdominal surgery actually might be a little higher than we thought it was and then you know Mm -hmm. five people replicate that study and say yeah like our numbers are also matching this higher number now we know you know xyz more about the risk it's you know, science mm-hmm. is a pretty slow iterative process. Um, mm-hmm. So usually it's, it's littler things like that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: No, I would like to hear more examples because that will lead to my question. Um, like, for example, there's some instrument. So how do we collectively find out that something's happening with that instrument that's hurting patients? Is that mm-hmm. in the ballpark or what would you help me understand this better?
2: Yeah, so that's a lot of what I do. One of the things I actually spent my whole day doing today was the FDA keeps a database of adverse events that are reported for medical devices specifically. Um, And my team does a lot of research on endoscopes and ultrasound probes, things that aren't surgical instruments, but that go inside the body in some other way. Um, So I read every single report that the FDA got last month of, of Adverse events, things that have gone wrong with medical devices, Um, whether that person got an infection, whether, you know, the device broke apart in the middle of a procedure or, you know, scraped up a patient's kidney, like really horrible things, unfortunately, do happen with medical devices. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's often where we kind of that's often where we kind of see the first safety signals is in things like that, reports coming out of hospitals, healthcare facilities. And that's usually when researchers sort of pick up the torch and say, hey, this seems like it might be a pattern. How can I investigate that? How can I find out what's causing this and what we might be able to do to stop this from happening? So that's you know, why I monitor those things for my team is so that we can kind of both just be aware of what's going on in the field and help us come up with some ideas for, you know, things we might want to pitch as grant proposals for our own projects.
0: Yeah. Does some of that responsibility fall back on the equipment manufacturer? If there's a significant break or, you know, something, I know recently there was a, a, an airplane that the door just blew off mid-flight and so, of course, like Boeing is responsible for figuring out what went wrong. And it turns out, I, I can't remember the exact, but I think there was like a loose bolt in this mm-hmm. 737 MAX 9. I can't remember the specific type of aircraft. But is it the same situation there where it's not always just about what the infection is, but also, you know, this tool is just unsafe inherently. It needs to be modified before it's safe to use again.
2: Yeah, I, I think there's some of both. Um, there certainly are situations where, It's that, hey, this medical device needs a major redesign to make it safe. Mm -hmm. Um, But on the flip side, these are medical devices that we use for a reason. You know, it is generally safer to go in with an endoscope instead of having to do open surgery where your risk of infection Mm -hmm. is even higher. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the, you know, the errors can come down to manufacturing issues that can be fixed at the manufacturing level. Sometimes it's human error. The device isn't being Mm. used the way it's supposed to be. Um, The device isn't being cleaned and disinfected the way it's supposed to be. Um, So that's part of the challenge is figuring out where the issue is actually coming from in the first place.
0: Yeah. Discerning, was this human error or did this, you know, was this put together improperly or was it cleaned improperly?
2: Right. Interesting. Did someone drop it on the floor and break it right before the procedure? Like crazy things happen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah,
1: (laughs) It's such a good example of what we're talking about because- it doesn't sound to me to be very glamorous that here there is this brilliant girl reading, reading this kind of stuff. But what if you didn't, what if nobody did this? You know, I mean, so my question gets into, you know, if there are people that ever struggle making this connection that what I've been given to do in life is from God. And it's, as we say, it's holy and it's, it's, it's changing the world. The struggle could be for some that they maybe don't ever get to know the people that they've helped or meet them. Like your husband, the therapist gets mm-hmm. to, and mm-hmm. I get to sometimes as a teacher, but people are alive because of you. I'm just going to say, and you, you'll you never know <laughs> right. who they are um, and they'll never know you. And so what What was you, what does that trigger for you?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, I think my experience is pretty specific, but some of this might apply to other people. I don't know. Um, I think there are probably very few things you can choose to do in the world that aren't helpful in some way to somebody. The question is whether or not you can see it and um, it just in the infection prevention field, right? Everyone adores the surgeon who gave grandma 10 more years to live and they should, (laughs) because that's an awesome thing to be able to do for somebody. But I don't think anybody ever really thinks about the infection preventionists and the sterile processing workers and everybody else who made sure that she also didn't get like a life-changing hepatitis infection during that surgery. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: exactly.
2: So yeah, it is hard. I mean, I have things that I like to look at and point to that kind of help me when I'm feeling like, you know, wow, I spent all day reading about a specific kind of hinge on a robotic surgical arm and that feels really, <laughs> really useless <laughs> um but it's not of course um i'm curious so i don't know <laughs> well, that's maybe you, that
0: says
1: more about me than- yeah i think so <laughs> that's an off the Tell record me more, conversation <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it brings up a great point unless you have more to say keep going
2: oh um yeah i was just gonna say that i have things that i can look at like oh after we did this study and did this intervention at this one hospital you know their surgical site infection rate went down 15 percent and you know that's that could be you know 20 Mm. people 25 people who didn't get a surgical site infection and we don't know for sure that that's because of what we did but it seems like it might be and to try and conceptualize that and you know I see a lot of spreadsheets and numbers but to conceptualize that as 20 people who didn't have to get extra antibiotics and have to stay in the hospital an extra long time. And having a surgical site infection is scary and painful. And so you're know, kind of imagining the people that I will never actually get to see.
1: Man, it's just, you take that donut and you just exponentially expand. <laughs> <You know? laughs> who, how, who has kept me alive? Like how many people have their hands in that? Mm-hmm. It's just, like I said before, it's just staggering. I mean, Are I've never feels- thought
0: about that in terms of a surgeon either. I always just think about you know they show up and then they put all of their protective equipment on and then they <laughs> you know someone hands someone a scalpel and then things happen. But to think about all the you know hundreds, if not thousands, of people that have put things in place so that that situation can occur, I haven't thought about. Mm. But right. to like how deep does that go? It's just right? it boggles my mind.
1: Right. And Who? Who cleans the floor? Who keeps the lights on? Who, 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 you know? Right. Yeah. Uh, And a lot of it isn't glamorous. This feels really important to me. Um, One quote I think we said and I lost in the lost tape, but uh, Swedish theologian Einar Billings was really good for saying that you would search in vain through Martin Luther writing on vocation to find any thought of doing things that are great in this world, or let's say great in the eyes of the world, because what you're talking about is great, but no thought of being somebody in that way. And he just talks about how the forgiveness of sins lights up our mundane tasks from inside. And he just says, forgiveness of sins is the only sun in our sky. This is our reason. It's just to offer God a grateful response. And so there are good things to say to those that, that are just in a position in life where they're just not going to see the impact. Um,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and I think that back to the the role of the pastor I think like the pastor doesn't need to become an expert in epidemiology but he sure could create a space for the conversation where people can talk to each other about their vocations you know what I mean? give encouragement that he can kind of create the create that moment Um, just to somehow bust out of the notion that I'm only serving God if I'm there when the doors are open to the church you know No, 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 that just is way too narrow, way too narrow. Um, So anyway, more, either of you, just as we think about, what if I don't see that what I'm doing matters?
0: What if I can't see it?
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll I'll fill in a gap here. You guys can think about that. I'd love to hear what you have to say. There is a famous writer named Henry Newen. I don't know how to say his name, Nowen or Newen just did workshops and books and created communities and did incredible stuff all over the world but the end of his life he spent taking care of one handicapped man and i mean bathing him and feeding him with his you know hand to mouth and so on and the last thing he wrote one of the very last things he wrote was how that was he came to see the most important time of his life the most and And that just comes from really busting out of I have to see with my eyes what matters, and it has to be great in some way. It has to be some kind of big splash in the world and nah, it's just not not something we need. We might want that, but
0: yeah, I think that's the I find myself struggling with that a lot of times because the industries that I'm usually working in are surrounded by people who are you know. You're always, I don't want to say like clamoring for attention, but the things that you do that are great are what get you noticed and what get you to further your career and to, you know, keep progressing forward and making more money and all of these other things. And then to to take a step back and not have to rely on that as a source of, you know, feeling good about what I do or it's not, a, it's not, that's not what makes what I do important. It's that I get to, you know, the smaller things, getting to put food on people's plates for a month, getting to, you know, maybe give someone else the spotlight for a, for a moment and further their career in that way. Or to, um, you know, help a company get a piece of content that helps them do even more good things in the world or put better food on students' tables in school cafeterias, things like that, uh, that are are more rewarding. yeah very good and then to to take another the the uh, the last step back which is to put it in the frame of you know as you said before forgiveness that's where everything is coming from that's where the the real value is all of those other things uh fall away and pale in comparison so um it is difficult to put myself fully into that frame of mind you have almost have to compartmentalize the way that or at least i have to compartmentalize the way i think about the work that i do sometimes where it's just you know this is this this doesn't matter this isn't the what what it's all about this is all in in pursuit of something more important that that will come later you know mm. so that's a uh, that's where i find i wrestle with it the most is you know occasionally yeah. things come <clears throat> up and it just becomes grueling for a moment but to take right. a step back is always good to reframe what it is
1: i'm actually trying to do in this world and I think that somehow brings to mind comparisons to ministry again, because I mean we have a lot we have students starting for teaching pastoral ministry, staff ministry who, if you really push them on it, they really think in their heart of hearts that it would be a sin not to and I don't, I don't know where they've gotten this idea, but it's it's a guilt thing that pushes them, pushes them in that direction. and you listen to how people talk. How many times does someone introduce himself to me and say, "Oh, I'm just a lay person?" No I, it just it just tells me, man, we got to get this message out. You are not just a lay person. Stop it. <laughs> Stop it right now. slap them. So even thinking about a pastor having a call, the things we say to a pastor having a call, I, we can say this almost the same things to anybody who's thinking about vocation. think about where God has put you, what your gifts and interests are and your gifts and um, what lights your eyes up, what you're good at, and you look at the impact you have, and then you look at other vocations that you might choose from, and, and you decide. You have the freedom to decide. The only thing really different is how that call comes to you. It doesn't come through a church in a voters meeting, mm-hmm. but the rest is all pretty much the same. It come, your, your call comes to you from the needs in the world that enter your awareness that you can do something about. That's the call of Jesus, and so, Abby, would you say you're a hundred percent at peace with that with that set of ideas? Because I know I think we set things up that anybody who isn't a pastor or teacher will probably at some level have to think, "Is this okay?" Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know?
2: Yeah, I I would say at this point in my life, I am one hundred percent comfortable with that. It did take a little while. Um, and I don't, I know we talked about this when we recorded before and I don't remember if it was before or after we lost it, but whatever, being kind of being made to feel right that I was making the wrong choice or that, okay, you're just trying this out and like, you'll be back. Like you'll, you'll see reason you'll come back around. And (laughs) (laughs) and, like, that was hard to deal with. Um, but now, especially as I get more experience, like doing this thing that I really love, that I really feel like is making a difference. I just, you know, I don't think being a teacher would have been the right move for me. So I think I can be more helpful to the
1: world in this role. Yeah, <clears throat> I think you did say that before and I'm glad you said it again, because I know my, re- my response earlier in this episode now is I bet that resonates mm-hmm. with a lot of people. So um, the other way of talking about a rhythm it comes from me presenting on this. It's been a while now, but presenting in different places. And there's a question that always comes up every single time after I say what I say about vocation, and that is, ah, oh, but Pastor Paulson sometimes it's a little bit much, you know, <laughs> and they're talking about I'm a, I'm a mother, I'm this, I'm that. I'm, and that, that whole range of vocations a person can inhabit at any given time. Just it can be flat-out overwhelming. And so what do you say about that? It's kind of where that question leads. And I always think about a time when I was overwhelmed by responsibilities <clears throat> and I was depressed about it. I was having a disproportionate, I mean, it was it was pressure, but what I was feeling was disproportionate as far as a response. I was just really in a dark place. And I remember being on the balcony at St. Paul's Church here in New Orleans. And the hymn, the hymn we were singing was, What God Ordains is Always Good. And if you just read that hymn, if you ever choose to, line by line, oh my goodness, it was just sort of destroying me in a, in a good way. <laughs> um, it was it was overwhelming, the power of that hymn. And so the rhythm is that my vocations do overwhelm me, and they do put me on my knees in some ways, sometimes more than others, and they do show me things about myself that are not pleasant to see, and they just bring me to the end of my efforts. and. And then those vocations drive me back to the cross, back to that kind of restoration I'm trying to describe in church. And that restoration at the cross, forgiven, reconciled, bound for heaven, it restores you, then it sends you back, back to those kids, back to that stack of papers to grade, back, 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 you know. So, and if you come to find that that's a good thing. I mean, being on our knees is a good place to be Part of what I find myself wanting to help people, lay people with especially, is sort of just coming to terms with, yeah, that's how it is. Yep. Vocations will exhaust you. They will. They will be too much for you. They just will. Um, so I don't know how you guys relate to that overwhelmed part of this.
0: I think the... well, will certainly understand the overwhelming portion, that, especially in the types of jobs that I am and how fluid they can be there are times when things go really well and there are times when things go really not well really bad and so <laughs> you have to like that part of that vocation is just navigating that as it is um in terms of how it that relates to you know the knowledge about what we've been talking about here in terms of you know logically all of this tracks in my mind it' I understand the 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 way that all of those things relate to each other from a, a logical standpoint. My brain understands the here's here's how forgiveness will be at the core of everything that you do. And that's where the the value and the vocation comes out and and things like that. In terms of actually feeling that and using that as a source of maybe energy to go back to the difficult thing, it's not always the case. And that's part of the struggle as well. And so that's the uh that's the thing that I personally need to get better at doing is being able to, in those moments of difficulty, be able to take refuge in that and then be able to, uh, return back with a, with a full spirit. That's the, that's the part that's a struggle. And I'm, it would be remiss to think that that will ever be something that's just, Oh, I've got that down. I'm sure, you know, if, if that's the case, the, Cross I'm bearing at the time probably isn't big enough, or I've left something important behind. So, yeah, that's that's how I relate to issues. it. At least right
1: now, <clears throat> I've got issues like that too. That are head heart issues. I know it in my head. <laughs> mm-hmm. It just doesn't travel very easily to yeah to infect my my whole approach to life in a real way. So we're all struggling can, with that.
0: I can I can read scripture where it says God will not give you a cross that's too heavy for you to bear but you know reconciling that with the things that are actually going on in life isn't always as easy sometimes it will feel lighter sometimes it will feel overbearing and so just uh you know. that that's where you can that's where you can really let your faith shine and just uh that's where the trust part comes in
1: that's a that's a really interesting reference because i think if you look at it very closely the scripture is saying you won't be tempted beyond oh, what you can
0: Oh, and it's relating bear. to sin. Yeah,
1: and I only say that because um, I wrote that. What you said, I wrote in my book, one of my books. Mm-hmm. And I've just had a chance to think. The apostle Paul says in one place, "I was overwhelmed beyond my ability to bear it." So, so actually, I can have more than I can be given more than I can handle. Um, but that's the paradox of when weak and strong.
0: Well, maybe then to you know, to to save my error there. Remember our disclaimer at the beginning. <laughs> That's uh, right. The, uh, <laughs> send um, that one back to the show. Yeah, see. we'll send that <laughs> yeah. one back. Uh, that coffee that was a little bit cooking, stale. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but the the one that I'm more confident in would be that uh, God works in all things for the good of those who love Him, and so yeah, all totally. of that will will come together. And so
1: there, I've I've corrected. You did well. <laughs> <laughs> My, <myself. laughs> when I presented on the divine call, of course, students. One of the questions in the Q and A was, but what if by the call and this could apply to vocation any vocation. What if I get burned? And they were thinking, what if I get a call that's, I don't know, political and and it just ends up being a disaster and that was the answer there too, Romans eight. You don't get burned. There there's no getting burned. You like we'll say with Keenan in the next episode, there's there's no wringing my hands over am I in the right place? You're there now. You're there and so you you know, at least for right now, what God's will actually is. For students who want to get ahead of themselves and maybe you'll be a pastor, God willing, but you're a student now, this we know for sure. Because here you are, right? Um So when I I always say when the apostle Paul had his Macedonian call, a different kind of call, but still in the same um bank, I guess. He has a call to come to Macedonia, come help us, this vision. And when he gets there, he gets the crap beat out of him. <laughs> and he could have said, I've been burned. This has been a mistake. No, it wasn't a mistake. It's just we have to have a theology of the cross that, that God still does do his best things and struggle and, and apparent defeat. So I'm, I'm probably rambling all over the place. I don't know if I'm even responding well to you. I, I wanted to come back to this one thing. We we kinda have said in choosing a vocation, you say, What is what's some good I can do in this world? Um, in choosing between vocations of these two possibilities, what is the most good I can do for this world? And it doesn't make irrelevant what will be satisfying to me because did we say this too, the puzzle piece falling into place when you when you experience that? It's very satisfying and it's a very blessed thing to know I'm doing what I've been made to do. But what I always kind of want to add to that is it's also true that any vocation that's worthwhile will have a cross in it. will have the part that you wouldn't have chosen for yourself, the hard part, if it's worthwhile. And I just... So we're not really choosing vocation based on, oh, it's going to make me the happiest. You know, oh, what's the most good I can do? Um, and seeing that there's going to be a cross in it, a hard part, doesn't become a reason not to do it. And it's also not wrong to pray and hope for being in a place that can feel satisfied. I can actually have some sense of how God is using me. But I don't need that. I really don't need that because we're not earning anything here. Um, we're not justifying our existence. It's none of, none of that kind of stuff that, you know, the pagans have to run after. We don't have to, really. Um, so I'm kind of at the end of things on my heart with this issue. I need, yeah, I think
0: so especially in for myself as well, especially considering that we've got a whole nother episode coming right after this which will refer back to this one and <laughs> this moment. So uh I'm I'm ready as well, Abby. Anything else?
2: I am I think I'm on good. Your end? Um just to answer briefly the question about what's the struggle with my work and
1: Please, please do.
2: Um You know, getting started as an epidemiologist in the middle of a global pandemic felt, I think, the definition of overwhelming and just (laughs) sort of wrestling with this idea of there is so much that we need to do just in public health in general. There's so much more we could always be doing and that, you know, what I'm doing is important and it's a tiny drop in the bucket of what needs to be done. And just, you know, I think it's really easy to fall into that feeling of, I'm not doing enough. I, I could be doing more. I could always be doing more and just, yeah, I'm, I still struggle with that, but trying to learn to give Mm. the rest of it to God, you know, I can only do what I can do and I'm just one person. Mm. But I, I think, and I think a lot of people who are in service roles of some kind will feel like that, that there's always more that you can do.
1: Yeah. I feel like if you were a teacher And that came out of any sense of anything else would be less than. I don't think you would be talking with this kind of passion because your passion comes through. Mm -hmm. I just don't think, you know. So I I get it. It's overwhelming. Um, God putting us where He needs us doesn't mean it becomes in ours. It still is all His. Mm -hmm. The need of the world is His before ours. Um, In fact, that triggers something. Someone said to me when I was a young pastor that really, really saved me in some ways. And what they simply said to the question of, am I doing enough? Um, Which was a huge issue for a missionary too. And that is a picture, picture a bottomless pit of human need. And the idea was, if you spend the rest, the next 80 years of your life, pouring yourself into that bottomless pit of human need, it's all around you all the time. Where will you be? It will be a bottomless pit (laughs) on that day that you're 95 years old and are, are all done. It'll still be that. So the idea is that the pit isn't yours. The pit belongs to God. It's his. To see, to. And he owns it. And ours is just to faithfully pour ourselves in. And I found an incredible amount of perspective in that simple picture. I'll just pour myself in. But I'm not the Savior. I'm not God. Mm-hmm. And thankfully, there is one already. I don't <laughs> need to be that. But yeah, I'm glad you had a chance to say that because I, your mom and I have always kind of boasted like yeah she's an epidemiologist epidemiologist in a pandemic but i never really thought about that's probably a hard thing to be yes (laughs) you know (laughs) to emerge in the field when that's going on
2: yes it is it was a trial by fire and you know we all learned a lot and we're gonna do better next time and that's what we can do (laughs) do you think so I hope so.
0: I'm not not quite ready for next time yet. I think we need another year or two, and then I'm ready for another global pandemic, I think.
2: Hopefully there will be no next time in our lifetimes, but it's not my job (laughs) to be the optimist, unfortunately.
1: (laughs) So, so John, Abby gave us two weeks notice, was it, do you think? How, How much... Well, you knew this was coming before we? Were oh talking
2: yeah, about COVID. I, I had about a, a two to three week lead on. Hey, this is maybe going to a... be really serious.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I don't even remember what the timeline was like back then. It was everything was it early shut. March? Yeah,
2: everything shut down in March. Um, we were picking some stuff up. I was listening to some CDC talk as early as January, but kind of started mm. really paying attention in February, and then yeah, boom.
0: I heard. And I just, Few, I heard a few stories. I think in February, if I recall correctly, because I still had, I think I had a, one or two jobs that were finishing up that were scheduled that we did, and then those finished up, and it was like, maybe that person on set had this disease, yeah. <laughs> and you know, you don't know, and I, I didn't end up getting it, thankfully, but um, yeah, it was what an interesting time to think back, especially mm-hmm. the first Crazy. the first month. <clears throat>
2: That was such a strange time. And then we all thought it was going yeah. to be two weeks and be done. <laughs> That's not what yeah. happened.
1: <laughs> so Connie and I were in Thailand, and they were just masks showing up. We were I was doing some work there. Um, it was about the Book of Ruth. And so here were like 30 young Christians who were then in Friends of China, doing mission work in China. Mm-hmm. And in the course of the week we were there, I forget how long week two weeks, um, all these questions started coming. Should they go back to China? Will mm. they be stuck there if they do go back for their stuff? Mm-hmm. And so we're studying the book of Ruth and all the uncertainty of that book in the context of real uncertainty. Yeah. Like real, real hard questions for just young people to try to navigate. So I have vivid memories of that. Mm-hmm. So yeah. you were able to make it back. A, <clears throat> we were, did were you, yeah. were you held up there at all? Or was it nope, kind no, of no, right no. in the last, the last play just, now? <laughs> just masks showing up. Um. Oh. Um. Coming back. No. It was. It was not a big issue. We were, we were never at any risk of not not getting. That's home, good. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> I think that it's was, time for some dessert. Let's have some dessert. Yeah. Um. Who wants to go first? I think I've talked a lot s- since episode, so I don't feel any need to. But we got two of you. So I
0: remember the last time that we had recorded this, I think I talked about uh, a murder mystery night that was coming up that I was going to be taking part in. Um, it was uh, going to be held at a beer festival and someone in the beer festival dies and these microbreweries and their owners are all competing <laughs> against each other. And that was kind of the thing. So, so that went well, it happened. I tried to convince everyone that I was the killer the entire time. Even though I didn't think I was. Like, <laughs> but uh just to confuse people. But it but it was fun. It was always fun to kind of, you know, role play and have, you know, experiment with different things and
1: mm-hmm. Yeah, who were you with?
0: I was with who? the 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 Siles family out here. Shout out to all the Siles family. Oh no. Kidding. I'm not sure if any of them live there, but uh Pastor James Siles in Colorado Springs. And I think most of his children were there. So oh. yeah. So it was a a fun time, family and friends there. And also I have to give another shout out. I'm having two separate little morsels of dessert. So forgive me for (laughs) saving my stomach for the last part. But uh, as of this Monday, uh, Michigan football won the college football national championship. So I have to, to give a shout out there. I know a lot of my friends are big Michigan fans. Maybe some of them are listening. Shout out to all of you as well. No one's got it better than us. That's all I got to say. So I
1: saw that on Facebook. Who said that? Was that?
0: So, so I think the story is that uh, Jack Harbaugh was a football coach in Iowa. Okay. And Jim and John, uh, I think John is the Ravens head coach in the NFL. Mm-hmm. And then Jim is the yep. Michigan football head coach. Every morning, he, Jack would go into their room and he would say, uh, who's got it better than us? And they'd both... Respond, nobody And so that was the, that's kind of their Mantra, if you
1: will I I love knowing the context for that Because I saw that phrase, didn't know
0: So that's kind of the uh, That's been a a mantra for some time
1: We had a Um, mantra At our house when I dropped Abby Off to school, or (laughs) Hannah Do you remember what that was, Abby? Let's hear it
2: Was it, have a great day Have a great day. That's I mean. <laughs> there, was,
1: there was some when I was a kid there was some Irish race car driver. No, no Irish race car commentator would always say, It's a great day for motor car racing. Yeah, I I, <laughs> so, I
2: hated that. <laughs> it
1: would be as obnoxious as I could, dropping the girls off.
0: Have a great day. Yep.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what race series was he in? Oh, I don't know. This is years, decades ago. <laughs> But mantras are curious. good. That's I'll have catch.
0: to, I'm, now I need to dive, I'm, now I'm curious enough, I need to dive in and find out who this guy is.
1: Yeah, I bet you, I bet you it's out there.
0: I'm so. sure, if if it was a mantra and it was a thing, I'm sure it's available. Or it was
1: just some random thing that I picked up on, I don't know. Maybe. But I'll do Abby. some digging, we'll find out. Dessert from Abby.
2: Yeah, I'm going to switch it up from last time. My dessert is going okay. to be Venba, which is a video game that I played recently. Um, it's really short. It's Venba. like Venba, V E N B A, and it's a cooking game that is actually more of a storybook about um, an immigrant family, a, an immigrant family from India who lives in Canada, and it's sort of this story of their culture through their food and their, you know, son growing up as a child of immigrants, but he wants to fit in with his friends in Canada, you know, through the food he packs for lunch for school, things like that. Um, <laughs> And i don't know it, it's cool it made me think a lot about ah. video games as a storytelling method and how different it feels you know this could have been a short film but mm-hmm. it was a game and yeah. to play as a character in it it yeah it made me think and it was it's a cool game
0: very interesting is wow. it like a third person like you play as the as the kid
2: you play as the mom um as the mom. for most of the I you see. play as the kid towards the end but you play as the mom for most of the game and yeah like so, i said it's it's more of a storybook than anything like you're a lot of times just clicking through dialogue and then you mm-hmm. cook a delicious Indian mm-hmm. meal and
1: it's a whole experience. Yeah, it's <laughs>
2: it's short. It took me like an hour to play the whole thing.
1: It's I recommend it. I would like to know if both men and women play that game or if it's just women because one gender distinction, which is a stereotype, is often true, is that in boys' games you have a winner. Mm-hmm. And a loser. Sounds like in Venba nobody wins. Is that fair to say? (laughs) That
2: is fair to say. (laughs) Nobody wins. Or everybody
0: wins. Or loses.
1: (laughs) Or everybody wins.
0: (laughs) Now I'm trying Uh, to find out where that Venn diagram is of, you know, games that boys would play that don't have a winner.
1: mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Or some... I guess all of them have some sort of objective. Otherwise, there'd be nothing to get you to start moving through the game. Like, you have to make this meal now. But once you complete it, it's not like you... pat. Well, I guess you could, like, fail the objective. But it's not like you're competing against something other than just your own experience as you go through the game. Maybe mm-hmm. something like pressure washing simulator. <laughs> yeah. I saw my roommate was playing that one once st- one time. That was very... Interesting, almost therapeutic. Mm-hmm. That one's very like satisfying. Hypnotizing.
2: Yeah.
0: Oh, you've played that? You've played that I've, one? I've
2: watched it be played, and I'm like, I could, I could, I could see myself getting into this. Yeah. I'm not going to do it, but I can see how it there would be fun. There are some nights
0: where that would, if I could choose, if I was going to be playing a game, <laughs> that would be a top candidate, yeah. I think, <laughs> of, of games to play.
1: Coach, are you, you play any games? Um, I have this game on my phone I'm addicted to. It's called Zuba. Zuba. It's kind of like uh, Zuba Oh what's that What's that movie With the Which starts out You gotta get your weapons And they try to kill each other And what am uh, I
2: thinking? Like the Hunger Games
1: Yeah Hunger Games kind of like that Oh interesting Cause you start out Trying to get weapons And you got a little at your Animal character <laughs> And then the fire comes And starts to Bring you closer and closer Together with each other In the middle of the thing
0: Oh interesting
1: Yeah just, Like an animal version Of a Yeah Like a battle yeah, royale Like, like style. a playful version Of yeah, yeah. <laughs> that sounds fun. So that's now that's I'm gonna my, I'm
0: gonna have to. Can you play against people? I want to play, play. Yeah, there's them. all
1: kinds of good things you can do. <laughs> I kind of stay. I'm just not very good at it, so I tend to just <laughs> do solo. But very fun. No, it's it's really cute and it's really slick. So, that sounds yeah, fun. And that games dopamine are, thing when you kill somebody. Oh my goodness! The overlap between
0: between <laughs> games and narrative is very. Very that is interesting. So interesting.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Abby, before we started recording, you mentioned being a widow in some sense. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> I
2: I was just joking about how when we were in college, my husband Keenan got very very into League of Legends to the point where there were a couple days where I was just like, I'm not going to see Keenan today because he's playing League of Legends <laughs> <laughs> with his friends. So I. We've also had periods like when he played Skyrim, I was a Skyrim widow because he played Skyrim
0: <laughs>
2: and we maybe didn't see as much of each other, but no, that's not a typical problem. Just every once in a while when a video game really grabs no. him, I become a widow.
1: <laughs> I can't imagine though, within within bounds, of course, that that's just the thing he would need as a therapist, something like that, mm-hmm. right? To extract yourself from all the heavy stuff of the day.
2: I think so. But- I think it's a good way to decompress
1: yeah yeah I can only imagine
0: thankfully I haven't or at least I'm not aware that I've widowed anyone in, <laughs> in any of these these game obsessions but League of legends i've I've played mostly I just play with it's a it's a fun one to play remotely with my siblings
1: mm-hmm.
0: um but speaking of you know games and stories that that game has a lot of background and lore that they put into it and there's some very very interesting storytelling that can happen there, which can kind of mm-hmm. kind of give it its own little world. And give some context mm-hmm. to the actual things that happen. I have no doubt. Well, we got to be careful; otherwise, we we'll fill up people too much with our with our desserts here.
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. So, um, can we recreate yeah. our awkward ending? What do we? How, that,
0: how do we usually do those?
1: Well, I think I I say anything more, John, and you say. No. no Okay oh, I'm
0: ready Okay I'm ready then, And then, then, you,
1: then you say Abby Anything more Okay okay I'm ready Okay so John anything more
0: No Abby No <laughs> <laughs> That's all folks We'll see you next time On the Where two or three Keenan's episode coming up We'll talk <laughs> to you all later Cue the music Thanks you guys And we're out